Welcome back to Sleep for Performance Radio. Today I'm joined by Dr. Melissa Ree. Uh, Melissa is based here in Perth in Western Australia. She is the owner and clinical psychologist at Sleep Matters and at Jeffrey and Ree Clinical Psychologists. Now in this episode, uh, Melissa and myself get into the discussion around CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy, specifically for uh, insomnia and people with issues sleeping, which many of us do experience at some time in our life. Um, so there's definitely some little good little snippets in here for everybody, even if you're not suffering with a um, sort of insomnia, sleep disorder at present, you probably know somebody or you go through some uh, bad periods of sleep. So after a word from our sponsors, we'll get straight into the episode. Orbis are a global consulting firm who facilitate the rapid delivery of significant and sustainable improvements in performance across a diversity of industries. They facilitate turnaround, transformation and strategic improvement programs through the development and implementation of a system and culture of lean and continuous improvement. Now Orbis are growing their global presence across the Asia-Pacific region, Europe, Middle East, Africa and the Americas. Their range of services include optimization of business development systems to deliver growth, through to operating system improvements that reduce cost by improvements in safety, quality and productivity. So what this means for your business, typically they will give you outcomes such as a reduction in cost. Who can beat that? Increasing capacity utilization, throughput, increase in revenue, profitability and overall customer value and satisfaction. Orbis have extensive experience in facilitating change in challenging environments by utilizing lean tools and methodology, joining engagements across the world, including diverse um, sectors and industry, such as mining, energy, construction, transport, aerospace, manufacturing and healthcare. Orbis people are industry professionals driven to achieve sustained results through the development of trusted relationships. So head over to www.orbis.com orbiz.io that's orbiz o-r-b-i-z.io for more information get in contact with them to organize a visit today to your organization this episode of sleep for performance radio is brought to you by orbiz orbiz are a global consulting firm who facilitate the rapid delivery of significant and sustainable improvements in performance across a diversity of industries they facilitate turnaround, transformation and strategic improvement programs through the development and implementation of a system and culture of lean and continuous improvement. Now Orbis are growing their global presence across the Asia-Pacific region, Europe, Middle East, Africa and the Americas. Their range of services include optimization of business development systems to deliver growth, 
through to operating system improvements that reduce cost by improvements in safety, quality and productivity. So what this means for your business, typically they will give you outcomes such as a reduction in cost. Who can beat that? Increasing capacity utilization, throughput, increase in revenue, profitability and overall customer value and satisfaction. Orbis have extensive experience in facilitating change in challenging environments by utilizing lean tools and methodology, joining engagements across the world, including diverse um, sectors and industry, such as mining, energy, construction, transport, aerospace, manufacturing and healthcare. Orbis people are industry professionals driven to achieve sustained results through the development of trusted relationships. So head over to www.orbiz.io, that's Orbiz, O-R-B-I-Z.io, for more information, get in contact with them to organise a visit today to your organisation. This episode is also brought to you finally by Fatigue Science. The Fatigue Science ReadyBand is a wearable device that helps you improve safety and your performance through the science of sleep. The ReadyBand is a way more than just a sleep tracker. It's the world's only sleep measurement tool that's paired with safety, a biomechanical fatigue model, which has a predictive algorithm. So what that means is actually predict into the future what your performance is going to be based upon your data. This was initially developed by the US Army Research Lab and was uh, built to improve the performance of soldiers in operational environments. Now this device has been adapted to work in elite athletes and industrial workers. This is also a device that I have validated in the laboratory myself and I have used extensively in industry and research applications. As listeners of this podcast, you probably know that restorative sleep is about more than just the numbers of hours of sleep you get, factors like when you sleep, how much sleep that you have accrued, and even your local um, geographical location, so a sunset, the time you go to bed, the time the sun comes up, all of these things are all these different factors in chronobiology um, that affect your performance. So this ready band was developed to incorporate all these factors that can really help you understand the real impact of sleep on your life. So ReadyBand not only helps you track changes to your fatigue over time, but also allows you to discover new ways to achieve personal fatigue improvement goals. So you can actually measure the improvements that you're making uh, as you go. Now, ReadyBand is is relied on by lots of different organizations and they've got a very impressive resume. So winners of the Super Bowl, Seattle Seahawks have used this, the Chicago Cubs have used this, military special forces and workers who operate in uh, long shifts in dangerous environments such as tunneling underground, mining, oil and gas. Uh, it's been used in elite sports such as rugby, basketball, um, it's been used at the Australian Institute of Sport, it's been used in uh, elite MMA athletes who compete in the UFC, so it's a wide variety of applications. So if fatigue is important to you and your organization, whether you're a sports team or an industrial workforce, head to fatiguescience.com, that's fatiguescience.com, to speak to a member of their team and to learn more about how the ReadyBank can improve safety and performance in your organization. Thank you for listening to these ads, now on to the episode. Melissa Ree, welcome to Sleep for Performance Radio. Hi there, Ian. Good to be here. It's great having you. Thanks very much. So you're joining us today from Zoom, even though we're in the same city. We're just too lazy to get together and meet due to conflicting schedules and busy times. So, yeah, let's see if the uh, technology works in the same city. So good so far, hey? <laughs> 
So, Melissa, um, can you give us a little bit of a background on who you are and what you do? Sure. So, uh, as you know, I'm Dr. Melissa Ree. I'm a clinical psychologist here in Perth. And I started getting really interested in sleep back in 2002. After I did my PhD at UWA here, I went and did a postdoc at Oxford, of all places. And um, I was working there on a treatment trial for insomnia where we were looking at a treatment called cognitive therapy which is all about looking at how we think, our attitudes, beliefs and our emotions as they relate to sleep. And um, thankfully, we found that cognitive therapy is a really effective treatment and it appears in the literature a lot now. Um, as a, On returning back to Perth in 2004, I was very much bitten by the sleep bug, if you like, really interesting area to work in as a psychologist because psychology is incredibly effective for helping people maximize their sleep so i've really been working a lot in the area of insomnia treatment since then and now we've established sleep matters which is a behavioral sleep medicine service that operates in subi and o'connor in perth and subi subiaco for those that's non- it Perthites. Okay. Yes. Apologies for that. Yes. So, so Melissa, when you went to UWA, University of Western Australia, um, Mm. where I just finished my PhD, you then went to Oxford. Did you work with Russell Foster or any of that group at Oxford? No, he was there at the time, but I was with Alison Harvey. Okay. And she's another big name in the in the literature. For, yeah. for insomnia, yeah. So, yeah, so I, I know Russell, I met Russell about a year and a half ago, and for those listeners, type in Russell Foster into um, Google or YouTube. Um, he's got some great media out there. He's been on m- many BBC episodes, podcasts. He's got a great TED Talk, um, which is, uh, I've got, I think, 5 million views now, that uh, wow. Russell's TED Talk. But Russell was here in Western Australia last year, a year and a half ago, and I met Russell. But um, Russell was my thesis examiner for my PhD. Oh, was he really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I just spoke to him a few weeks ago. And um, so, yeah, Russell was, uh, was my examiner. A great guy, um, you know, very knowledgeable and extremely extremely nice for a man of his stature because, as you know, sometimes <laughs> long-term academics uh, can be assholes. So he was actually quite nice <laughs> and quite engaging and quite positive. <laughs> yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah, and, and actually, um, there was there was a lot of nice ones. Uh, oh, there was a mixture, I'd say, in the department over there. <laughs> but but um, one that will come up in our discussion, no doubt, today is uh, Mark Williams. And if you type him into Google, um, you'll come up with all sorts of uh, summaries of, of his research. But he has been really one of the pioneers, if you like, of modern mindfulness. And he was one of the first people to publish some very well-designed, well-constructed randomised controlled trials trials for the use of mindfulness in treating things like chronic depression. Okay. Yeah, so he's a, he's a good one to look up to. Very good. So, Melissa, let's, um, let's take a step back and... and um talk about because we hear we hear different terminology in the sleep world um even when you go to a conference we hear different terminology in sports conferences around sleep in in industrial applications and then even just in the general media we hear cognitive therapy cognitive behavioral therapy 
cognitive interventions, mindfulness, meditation, um, you name it, Vipassana meditation. What, what's the difference between all of these in a quick summary, which might take a bit longer, but what is the difference between them? Or did one start off and it kind of evolved and now we're going off into like a kind of a spider web of things or what's really happening? How can we kind of decipher or categorize these things? Look, there probably is a bit of a spider web element here. So I'm going to use really broad brush strokes. Yeah. Um, so when psychological treatments for insomnia first started to appear, they were very behavioural. So this is getting people to change their routines and their behaviours around yeah. sleep. And that's really effective. And we still use behavioural approaches in our treatment today. They're really powerful. They tend to work really quickly for people. It's great stuff. But they can be difficult to apply and they're often difficult because people might feel anxious about applying them. You know, if we say you've got to get up at the same time every day, that can be quite a difficult thing for somebody to do if they've had a history of not sleeping well. So there can be anxiety, there can be negative thoughts around sleep and so that's where the cognitive element came in. If you think of cognitive referring to, you know, like the cogs of the mind. So these are interventions and understandings that are designed to help people to get at making their thoughts as helpful as possible. So we really want our thoughts to be working for us rather than working against us. So then the C got added into behaviour therapy and it became CBT. And that nowadays is the treatment of choice for insomnia. So over and above medication, CBT is recommended as, as the first-line treatment here in Australia and the UK, in the US. It's, it's, it's pretty standard. Now, triggering on from CBT in psychology, we've had what is collectively referred to as a third wave of behaviour therapies, which is a very misleading term because they're not really behaviour therapies, they really are more cognitive therapies. But this third wave encapsulates things like mindfulness meditation and acceptance-based approaches. So this is where we're really focusing on people to not necessarily change the content of their thoughts, but to help people build a new relationship with their thoughts. So if I've got a thought that says, I'm not going to cope tomorrow if I don't get eight hours sleep, in cognitive therapy, we might be working with someone to, to help shift that thought into something that's more helpful. Okay, if I don't get eight hours sleep, I might feel tired, but there's things I can do to help me get through the day. So the thought in that way becomes less anxiety-provoking, if you like. Yeah. But with mindfulness, what we would be doing is we would be encouraging the person to recognise that that thought has surfaced and not react to it. This is just a string of words that's occurring in the mind. This is not something that you have to get tangled up in. This is something that you can observe, you can watch without judging, and you can allow it to pass on through much in the same way you might watch a cloud pass across the sky. 
So this is, this is very interesting, Melissa, and it, our, our conversation is timely because there's two things I want to bring up here, which is in relation to this is, um, as many people, many listeners will know, I started my career off in the military and you obviously be awake for a long period of time and you go through a phase where you don't have much control. And let's be honest, I'm fairly a control freak and like to have a lot of control of my environment. And so for me, that's, that can be difficult. In the last 10 years, I've been doing a lot of ultra running, running up to 100 miles. Wow. So I remember like in a race in Leadville, Colorado, it's 100 miles at altitude. I'm running along. But it's like every step you take, it's one step done. And this too shall pass. And so like mm-hmm. I developed a mantra in my head because you get this buckle when you finish a big belt buckle. And I was like, in my mind, I just kept going, pain is temporary, the buckle is endless. Pain is temporary, the buckle is endless. So it was like a little mantra, and I was like, mm-hmm. going through. So that's one part. The second part is, recently in the last six months, I've been reading a lot about Stoic philosophy, Taoism, and Buddhism. I've been into Buddhism for like four or five years, and more, not so much as a religious kind of framework, but more like an operating system for me. And particularly with Stoic philosophy and Buddhism and Taoism, there's this kind of overlap. If you can imagine three circles, there's a lot of overlap. And when you were talking about observing what's going on and seeing what's happening, you remind me of Seneca. Seneca, mm-hmm. the Stoic philosopher, says the very same thing when you kind of approach things like, you know, if you look at the philosopher Alan de, Bo- de, Bo- de Botan, Alan, I might be saying he's wrong, his name wrong, he's an English guy, philosopher. I'm definitely saying his name wrong. I'm butchering him. <laughs> I know he's not listening, um, but anyway, he talks about that as well, as about being the observer of the thoughts, and this too shall pass. So what's the point in going, getting crazy in traffic or bad drivers? Because really, you get into this kind of system of um, internal locus of control, and external locus of control, ELOX and ILOX, what you can control. So it sounds like to me, when I read a lot of this philosophy, and I hear what you say, and, and I read some of the stuff from CBT, that there is either intentionally or unintentionally, a lot of overlap with this kind of stoic philosophy and Buddhism. Heaps of overlap and really bringing mindfulness into the Western vernacular. It, it's, it's completely, it's borrowed, isn't it, from yeah. these Eastern philosophies. And it's distinct. And I think it's important that it's distinct because it's off-putting for a lot of people to think, oh, crumbs, if I'm going to be taught mindfulness meditation, I'm going to have to become a Buddhist and adopt a whole heap of practices and philosophies that I'm not sure I want to adopt. But actually, it's something that that can either be completely bound up in those philosophies and, and Buddhism itself, or it can be very separate and people can really practice it in the way that, that works and fits best for them. Yeah, I think sometimes like with activity, even though... If you look really at meditation, if you look at some of the Western um, type people, like I don't know if you're aware of Richard Albert, who became Ramdas. He was nice. kicked out. Of, he was kicked out of Harvard in the '60s with Timothy Leary from doing all the LSD experiments. Well, Ramdas came from a very rich Jewish family and are well off. And I suppose it's easy to go and do, do these things when you have money. <laughs> Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, but he went to India and basically came back as his guru, Ramdas, and he's still alive and in Maui today, uh, living in Maui. And he's got this great book on meditation. And he's like, you know, meditation and mindfulness doesn't mean sitting cross-legged on, a, on, a, on the ground, being pious in the corner. Exactly. You, you might be running in the mountains, walking, walking in circles, swimming, sitting, looking at the wall. You know, it could be any which way it is. It's yes. that, that period where you kind of feel in this kind of, I suppose, we've, we've probably heard of flow states where you're in that flow where time is, you know, standing still and where you're in that 
area where you can kind of relax. Is, is that how we would describe mindfulness and meditation? Is that correct? Or? Well, look, it can, be, it can be all of that. Absolutely. It can be, um, oh, I think there's, excuse me, I'm just turning around to someone, someone at the door. Hello. Hi. Thank you. All good. Sorry about that. That's all right. A uh, little, little interruption. That's the, um, that's, that's the great thing about a live podcast that's recorded. Well, you did mention falling off my chair and that would be recorded, so <laughs> hopefully that'll be it. <laughs> um, look, so, and I really like to make a distinction when we talk about mindfulness between formal meditation practice, where you may be sitting in the lotus position, yeah, um, legs crossed, listening to instructions on a CD to guide you through a procedure, but you might also be cleaning your teeth or doing the washing up or having a cup of coffee and often actually having a little bit of both in your life can work really, really well. And often when I speak to clients about mindfulness, I'll say, you know, doing the mindfulness, the formal side of the practice where you might be listening to an app or uh, a YouTube video or a CD, it's almost a little bit like if you're learning a musical instrument, this is where you're learning your scales and yeah, you're yeah, doing yeah. the practice. And when you're having your cup of coffee or you're cleaning your teeth or you're sitting in traffic, that's where you're applying what you've learned, how to be mindful when it counts so you, that, you, know, you can get your moments worth out of life. Yeah, I must say, Melissa, and you can probably relate to this, in the last six months of my PhD, I nearly became like a Zen Buddhist because if I didn't, I think my head was going to pop off. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I had to really be practicing mindfulness and going, this too shall pass. This too shall pass. Because as you know, the last six months can be quite frustrating when you're tying everything together. Absolutely. You're trying, to, you're trying to bring it together. And that's true for many people running projects in a business, people in the military, people driving a, a delivery truck all day. You know, we can we can apply this to any job, regardless of what we're doing, whether it's highly cognitive, highly physical. We can apply these principles, right? And and same thing with sleep too, right? If we're um, lying awake in the middle of the night, or whether we're feeling fatigued during the day, um, you know, we can't always deny that we're feeling fatigued, and we can't deny that we're awake, but we might be able to remind ourselves to not get tangled up in the experience and end up intensifying it and make it worse for ourselves because so much of our experience can be intensified by how we think about it. Yeah, and, and that's a really interesting thing because, you know, we have, there's all these theories about living in a, in a, in a, in a kind of a matrix or a simulation. And I, I said to somebody the other day, well, really we do live in a simulation because what we think we actually make reality. So we are the creators of our own simulation. So in that same vein of what you're speaking about is if we think crazy thoughts, if we get stressed out, we're creating those conditions and then we're going to act within those conditions. Right. So there's so much we can control. So in, in saying that, Melissa, when you meet clients um, or you're working with people, whether it be athletes or non-athletes or people in high-risk industries, how much, how much do people kind of stress out about not sleeping? Like sort of go, oh, I've got insomnia, I can't fall asleep, I'm always waking up. Is it more about their approach to what that makes them stressed that kind of gets them spinning out of control? Is that, is that really what you see a lot of? And how do you kind of approach that with a person? How do you get them to kind of take a breath and step back and go, look, a few nights bad sleep is not the end of the world. Here's some coping strategies. 
Yeah, so getting stressed about sleep is, is huge. Um, and while I really love the fact that in recent years, sleep's become a much more high profile, hasn't it? I think we see yeah. a lot more articles about it. The importance of sleep is now being much better recognised than, than ever before, which ultimately I think is going to be great for people's health and, and well-being. But a little bit of the trouble with some of the public health messaging, I think, at the moment is that the people who were already worried about their sleep are the people that are really paying attention to these messages that sometimes do a little bit of scaremongering, I think. You know, if you don't get that eight hours sleep, you're going to develop cardiovascular disease or dementia or some terrible, you know, outcome is going to be around the corner for you. And if you're already a little bit worried about your sleep and then you're reading and hearing all these messages, it's having people's worry about sleep going through the roof, which is actually doing the opposite of what the messaging is designed to do, which is to get people to take care of their sleep and, and sleep well. So we do have a lot of people walking through the door, our doors anyway, um, who are coming armed with lots of references and websites saying, this is why I should be worried. And at two in the morning when they're finding it difficult to, to fall back to sleep after being up for, to go to the loo, um, sleep's not coming and that's because of the arousal that's present. You know, when we worry and we've got thoughts like, I'm making myself sick because I can't sleep, I'm not going to function tomorrow, my life's kind of falling apart because of this, that's pushing us much further away from sleep than towards it. So mindfulness can be really useful here. Yeah. If we can come to see those perhaps overly negative or catastrophic thoughts just as thoughts that the mind is showing up with. You know, if we think about the mind as being designed and having evolved to be a problem-solving machine at two in the morning when we've got the problem of being awake, the natural tendency for the mind is going to be to hook onto that. Yeah. How can I solve this problem? How can I fix this? But the trouble with sleep is usually the harder we try to fix it, the worse it gets because we get more frustrated, more tense, and that arousal level keeps going up. Yeah, yeah. Cycle, isn't it? That's interesting because like, um, I, I've been guilty of that in presentations or talks or podcasts or speaking to people about the negative aspects of sleep. And I think we use that, the negative, da the negative data, I suppose, because there's not much positive data. A lot of the research is about deprivation, loss, and the effect, chronic, acute. Yeah. And so that's very interesting. I, I think, you know, you've certainly given me something to think about when I do speak to people is, yes, these are the potential problems. However, this is the causal pathway. You need 20 years of continuous night shift to be at risk of cardiovascular disease. And right. then kind of put it in context and say a night or two of poor sleep is not going to kill you. However, right. if you do want to optimize performance and recovery and feel the best, this is what you need to do. In saying that, you should look for consistency and, you know, and so on. And given, given that message, so given the information, but putting it in context and then talking about what you can do. Because I think for me, I give the information and then say what you can do. And I don't contextualize it to the individual or to the group. So definitely if I had a gap for me there straight away today, which is very, uh, very good. So there you oh, go. That's the end of the podcast. We're done. We, I got something. I'm off. <laughs> 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 so, yeah. So, um, 
Melissa, for a lot of people who come through with um, issues around insomnia, and we've probably spoken about this before on podcasts, but insomnia can be probably categorized as issues around falling asleep, so sleep onset. Mm-hmm. There's like, um, we'll, we'll call it sleep maintenance, people waking up throughout the night, either frequently or for big periods. And then we have people waking up really early in the morning as well. Um, do you find, particularly for the sleep onset or the disruptions, does, is there any correlation or any link that you've seen from the data or anecdotally that that's affected with kids? So for one example is if we get it right, if we put good sleeping habits into children when they're young, does that transfer into adults? Or are people just predisposed to you know, having sleep onset insomnia, for example? Oh, can I say both? Well, you can say whatever you want, yeah. <laughs> you're, not, you're, not, you're not getting paid by any pharmaceutical company here. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> um, look, certainly good habits in childhood can translate to sound asleep as an adult. Um, part of that is generally if you're sleeping well as a child, it probably means you've got healthy sleep routines set up, but it also means you've probably got a really positive attitude to sleep and probably also some a bit of resilience to the odd bit of sleep deprivation. So again, human beings, we're not robots. We are designed to be resilient in the face of some variation. Um, you know, if we're sick, if we're travelling, if we're going through a period of stress, sometimes sleep will wobble a little bit. But if we've generally got those good consistent routines and healthy attitudes to sleep and a belief that this too will pass and that we're going to be okay, sleep goes back to its its good state without us having to do anything that fancy. However, if we've had a history of trouble with sleep, finding it difficult, and this could be a genetic predisposition, and and that could be something as innocuous as being on that end of the spectrum where biologically you just don't perhaps need quite as much sleep as the person next to you. But sometimes if you're somebody that does really well on six and a half hours sleep and you're married to someone that likes to get eight and a half, easy for the mind to tick over into I'm sleeping two hours less than my partner something must be really wrong with me am I in chronic sleep deprivation and so the worry can go and then we're not sleeping six and a half hours anymore we're sleeping five and a half because of all that worry is making it more difficult to even get six and a half hours sleep and that hour of sleep deprivation we know may actually start to cause problems in the long term because I'm sure your your reading of of the literature too is is similar to mine which is when we chronically fall below that six hour mark that tends to be where you know we're more at risk of some of those physical health problems especially if it's in the longer term. Yeah I, I would definitely agree with that from the literature and also from the work we do in industry when we take that data and then model it in biomedical software we see the risk you know really increases. Um, on top of the sort of um, variation and sort of childhood and predisposition, you know, kind of biology predisposed to bad sleep or good sleep, what about uh, personality types, introverts versus extroverts? This is something I've been thinking about lately yeah. and I've never seen anything on it. Well, there may be personality factors and I think, I think the research is just starting to go down um, 
that path. Actually, the, the Australasian Sleep Association, an email came around this morning for their conference this year, yeah. called Papers. I deleted it. I mean, I read it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things they were actually saying they were interested in was talks that was looking at the links between personality characteristics and insomnia. So it might be worth getting it out of the trash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm, very interesting. Um, I, haven't, I haven't done any research on that. We've done some stuff on chronotype recently, but mm. I think um, what what's kind of sparked my interest lately is you know some of the some of the testing that you may be aware of. Obviously, in people uh, maybe where these as well, the Myers Briggs or the DISC profiling questionnaire or any of these ones, and you come out with you know like a D and an I, and you're highly extroverted and you know whatever. Do those people sleep less? You know because they're more kind of out there buzzy and so on and then introverts because i've just kind of anecdotally been speaking to people and going yeah i'm an introvert and i i kind of just from my iometer not a scientific thing i find that introverts tend to need more time in bed and tend to need more sleep duration where the extroverts seem to be able to override the sleep loss and seem not to want to get as much sleep it would be interesting, wouldn't it, to, to explore the mechanisms there. Uh, we certainly know that introverts need more time alone to yeah. feel restored. You know, that's where they get their energy from, whereas people on that more extroverted end of the spectrum are getting their energy from being social and, and being around people. Now, just, to, I, I guess, to complicate things, one class of people that, that I would see at work are... Um, shy extroverts which might sound like a bit of a contradiction but these are people who love being around people but they're anxious about it and so it is possible to be a social being but also be anxious as well um but i'm thinking that 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 may well still lead to reduced sleep mightn't it yeah, and I think it also might pretend it might depend on the context because I know some people who are what you would classify as shy introverts. If they're sitting in a group and and they're not they're not with somebody, then they find that it's draining. But if they're in a group and one of their best friends or their partner is highly extroverted and is like a barrier, and they can sit on the wing and listen, right? Then they get energized by it. Yes. So there's, 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 yeah, there's definitely complications. Yeah. And I think too, sometimes it, it can be the case that an introvert will construct their life in such a way that it, it can really match their personality style. They might have a job where they're, they're able to work more independently, a little more in isolation, whereas we might hope that the extrovert is able to, to find a job where they're maybe they're working a lot more in a team, they're working collaboratively. And that if you've got that match between person and situation, that that's not causing stress or anxiety. Um, but it'd be interesting to see in that case if, if that still means that there's a difference in sleep need, sleep duration. Yeah, it's really interesting. Like for me personally, and I... I'm just going to use myself as an example of being an extrovert. It's like the busier I am, the better I sleep. Right. So the more, the more chaotic my life is, I just go to bed and go, Doof. and it's weird. But if I'm kind of 
not being completely busy or completely utilized, I start thinking about all the other stuff I'm doing, I want to do, and all the crazy projects or whatever I want to get into. Then I start lying awake. But when I'm right. really busy, I go to bed and it's like I'm getting hit in the head with a hammer and I just fall asleep. But in general, I won't. So it's it's really weird. But so yeah, I don't know. I think it's I think it's something maybe potentially that we could as sleep scientists we could look at. So if there's anybody out there that wants to give me and Melissa some funding, please contact me. <laughs> Always open to funding. <laughs> so Melissa, with the, with the meditation and mindfulness, um, what sort of things do you recommend or what sort of programs, whether it be apps, CDs, basic meditation, what sort of practices would you give somebody, for example, at saying, look, I'm having trouble falling asleep on work nights? What's kind of the general outline of how you would approach that? Well, I think it's really important that the practice occurs during the day. So I think one trap that people fall into when they might correctly read that mindfulness can be very helpful for difficulties getting to sleep is that we kind of might have a tendency to pull out a mindfulness app, for example, when we hop into bed and expect that it will work. And it might. It really might make a difference. But the technique's much more powerful if you're practising during the day and again, this is a little bit like the music practice idea. You know, you've got to practice playing your scales, rehearsing your pieces, and then when you're on stage and you're playing it for real, and it matters, it might actually just happen correctly for you. Yeah. So we've got to get that daily practice built up. So in general, mindfulness isn't a quick fix in the sense that it works like a sleeping tablet. You do it and you'll fall asleep. Um, it's something that will evolve over time. But there are heaps of really great resources now that people can go to. I particularly love the Headspace app. Headspace, okay. Yeah, that's great. And um, that's Andy who, with an English voice, very nice voice, I think. Um, but Smiling Mind is another one that's an Australian one and it's free. They've got an adolescent and an adult version um, different modules uh, for all, all kinds of different applications of mindfulness, which can be uh, for sleep, obviously, as well. But a, some mindfulness practice during the day coupled with practicing when you're in bed is usually the best way to go here. There's also some really good um, courses in Perth. The Perth Meditation Centre on Hay Street in Subiaco is, is great. Perth Mindfulness Centre, Dr. Mark Craigie is there. Um, he runs mindfulness groups throughout the year. So, And there's actually a lot of Buddhist centres in Perth you probably know about as well yeah. um, that run free mindfulness courses. And you will get a little bit more of an overall introduction to, to the Buddhist philosophy interweaved there as well. But... And I, really great options. And I suppose it's worth worth saying as well if you if you are interested in that sort of mindfulness stuff through the Buddhism um the route, you don't have to sit there in robes and shave your head and be chanting. It's very much non non religious type. So don't feel like you're gonna go there and have to convert if you're a Catholic, Protestant, Jewish person, Jehovah, whatever you are, you can go there. They're very welcoming and very nice. Um and so yeah, that's that's where I get commonly people go you're into buddhism 
I'm like, yeah, you don't look like a Buddhist. I'm like, yeah, well, what does a Buddhist look like? <laughs> head, we're yeah. Wrong. Like, yeah, it's not really like that, you know? So I, I totally right. agree with you. Like uh, the, the Buddhist system, wherever you go, no matter where you go in the world, I find it's very welcoming. If you go to temples or any shops or meditation centers and you want to learn any information, very, very open um, and very receptive. You know, it's, it's uh, very good. Um, so yeah, you've got, th- you got two apps there, the Headspace and the Smiling Mind. I've been using one called Butterfly as well. And that, right. that, has, that has stuff for during the day and that's got options for walking traveling just meditation taking five minutes out falling asleep and it's got like a little wheel and you can click on whichever one you want mm-hmm. so in like i think that's like five dollars or something and so that there are other ones you could you potentially could use as well um and like you were what, what else um oh so mark williams who i mentioned before sorry just got a bit of noise sorry that's vacuum cleaner going then <laughs> I think it's I think it's subsiding a little. Um, so other books I was thinking of um, Mark Williams. Yep. I don't think he's the first author, but he's one of the authors on this one. And the book is along the lines. The title's along the lines of Finding Peace in a Frantic World. Finding so, Peace in a Frantic World. Yeah. So it's it's geared towards people that might have a little bit of vulnerability to experience stress or low mood. But it's a really user-friendly self-help book to introduce uh, both a formal mindfulness practice but those informal practices that we've talked about too. And this feels like outdated technology now, doesn't it? But it, the book comes with a CD in the back. And I'm, I'm wondering, there might be an updated edition now where you can probably download everything you need to, but um, it does come with the resources so that you've got um, the capacity to have those meditations guided at least while you're getting used to them. Yeah, and then there's another uh, gentleman as well who's worth listening to. He's got lots of free stuff on iTunes, and I'll put the link in the show notes. A guy called Jack Cornfield, right. um, who's a clinical psychologist as well, PhD, um, ended up becoming a Buddhist monk in under Ajahn Chah in Thailand, came back to the West. He's probably in his late 70s now. He's got awesome talks online. Great. Yeah. Voice, Cornfield, K-O-R-N, Cornfield. Um, I'll put the link to his podcast in there. I think it's called Wisdom Meditation. Uh, he's got loads of, loads of free stuff on YouTube you can download as well. Lots of guided meditations. And another book, just on books as well, I've been listening to lately, is called Why Buddhism is True. Um, and a guy, by a guy called Robert Wright. And he basically spoke about what you were talking about earlier on, Melissa, which is, you know, being mindful. He went on a silent retreat for 10 days and he kind of thought, you know, this is all crap. But after four or five days with no coffee, no interference, you know, he started kind of getting into the groove. And he was like saying how mindful he was of like every mouthful of food he had consumed and everything slowed down and the beauty he saw in the world and and so on. And so that, that's that's pretty interesting book as well. And I just listened out on Audible. Um, so that's, that's an interesting one. But I'll put a bunch of these links in the in the show notes. And on that, top, on that topic as well, uh, listeners might be amazed, and even I'm amazed, I've signed up for a three-day silent retreat. It's a precursor to a 10-day silent retreat myself in June. So if I can keep my mouth shut for an hour, I'll be doing well, never mind three days. So 
let's see what happens. I'll like, be interested yeah. to hear how you go. That sounds very brave. <laughs> My wife said to me, if you do the 10 day one, you will most likely lose your mind and never come back. <laughs> so maybe all, maybe all the personalities inside me will come out on the three days. I can get rid of them. <laughs> so, um, Melissa, um, a couple of apps there, a couple of books to recommend. Um, What's the benefits of doing this for sleep? What, what do you see in your clinical practice? How much improvement do people get? Do, you, do people have their life like revolutionized or do they still struggle or do they have to have a combination of um, pharmacological treatments and mindfulness type stuff? Or how, how does it work? What's the benefits? Okay, so there's a really big spectrum here. For the vast majority of people, they might come to us feeling concerned about how reliant they've become on medications for sleep. So tamazepam, Stilnox, those kinds of things that are commonly prescribed. And very often by the end of treatment, and this might only be three to five or six sessions down the track, um, they've been either able to completely reduce or reduce their use to very intermittent, so maybe taking something once every two or three weeks. Yeah. Um, so it is a very real possibility for people to, to really get away from that medication merry-go-round. Um, if people are able to not get tangled up in the anxiety about not sleeping, that obviously feels much better in the moment and might let sleep happen. But it has really big impacts during the day as well. And I think often when people come to see us, they might be quite keen to start off being very nighttime focused in terms of the adjustments that they're wanting to make. And that makes perfect sense. They're coming for help with insomnia usually. Um, But what we find is that actually the changes that occur during the day is often where the real action is at because insomnia is something that can really rob people of their life. And if people get the sense that they're reclaiming life back, so it might be something small to begin with, like paying attention to the cup of coffee that you have in the morning, actually tasting it rather than, as I will sometimes do, get to the bottom of the cup and think, oh, geez, I can hardly remember starting it, let alone finishing it. Or it might be spending five minutes, you know, on the mat playing with the kids, but actually being present for them rather than thinking about the five other things that you feel you ought to also be doing with your time. And if people are able to start to make that shift so that they're able to choose to be mindful, to choose to pay attention in the moment, there's a real sense of reclaiming of life. And this is a little bit like insomnia treatment going through the back door because if people feel like they're starting to reclaim their life during the day, they start to worry less about their sleep at night. It's as if the poor sleep at night is having less impact and less power, if you like, in terms of influencing and making the day miserable if people are starting to do something about how they're relating to their day and feeling, geez, I can 
have a nice cup of coffee. I can have a nice time with my kids. I can pay attention to a colleague at work. It starts to create a belief that says, I can do all this even if my sleep the night before hasn't been brilliant. Yes. And that shift in mindset, that shift in, if you, if, you, if you like, beliefs about sleep, when that starts to change, it can really revolutionise the whole sleep-wake system because we've taken the arousal out of it. Yeah. So we're starting with the we're starting with the sleep in mind when we wake up, and this is a bit like what we did with some athletes as well. We speak about the timing of caffeine, the timing of training, the pre-bed routine, such as nutrition. So it's kind of similar, but maybe even at a more granular level down, because I'm guilty of this, and probably many other people is. We are walking with a cup of coffee, listening to a podcast while answering an email, walking down the street. Yeah. So when you're walking into people, you're listening to something, you're writing something else, and you're consuming a drink at the same time. Right. You know, coffee zombies. Or phone zombies. Absolutely. You know, lots of happening. Yeah. And just even a small task, um, like when, say, let's say you've ordered your morning coffee and you're waiting for it, can you resist the urge to get your phone out? Can you, can, can you stand there and wait? and do nothing in that moment other than wait. Well, this is interesting, Melissa, because we were having this conversation a few weeks ago uh, with some younger people, and we were talking about, and you might relate to this, you know, Friday night, Saturday, whatever, you would go out, maybe with one friend, or you go out on your own, and people would have said during the week, we'll meet at XYZ pub Saturday night around nine. You might get to that pub at nine, and no one turns up. Mm-hmm. And then you might go, oh, well, they're not here. Maybe they're at some other pub and you go there and then they'll be in there and they'll be like, oh, yeah, we forgot to ring the pub to tell you. So there was no text messaging, no mobile phone. And so, but in saying that, you often went out some nights. Some nights were crap and other nights were awesome because you were just open to like, you weren't on this crazy setup, you know, of meet you here. Now, if you get to a coffee shop and it's like, I meet you at three o'clock, 301, where are you? Yes. I'm on the way, I'm on the way, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming. I'm just walking in. And, like, and then we haven't got that patience. And like you were saying, we're constantly hooked into something. And so young, young people I've spoken to, like 20, 21, can't imagine sitting in a pub waiting for their mates to come in, just having a drink at the bar on your own. They're like, right. this, that's a world that's foreign. Yes. You know? And we're not even that old and we remember that. So, <laughs> you know, it's, it's quite different. You're right that the behavior, people not just standing, talking in a coffee shop or, sitting around or in a bar, you're in a bar on your own, everybody's like bang, bang, bang on the phone. We walk yeah, I think, yeah, I think the threshold's probably about 30 seconds now, isn't it, yeah. before the phone comes out. Yeah. And it's like a crutch. Like people have to be on it, looking at something, doing something. Instead but of just, I think when we're doing that, we're getting into that multitasking, aren't we? Yeah, multitasking. And I, what I said, you're busy, but you're not effective. Right. Yeah, you're and just doing lots, something. There's lots of evidence around that now. Yeah, and we see heaps of that as well, in, particularly with executives. Oh, I'm so busy, I'm so busy. Well, why don't you have standardized times? You know, why can't you make this better to, to, to kind of you know, automate as much stuff in your life as possible so you only have meetings at a certain time during the day, like a kind of a, what do we call a working menu. So you, do, oh, you get in the morning at 7, 7 to 8. Don't answer the phone, just answer emails. Then you can answer the phone from 8 o'clock to 9. If you want to have meetings, have the meetings between 9 and 12. And tell your staff and tell your assistants or whoever's booking in stuff, that's the only time I'm available. And then in the afternoon, you have scheduled time off to work on your, on your actual work. 
turn off Wi-Fi mm-hmm. if you don't need it. Turn the phone to yeah. mute. You know, we can control yeah. these things if we wish. You know, and I've been doing that lately. I've been turning off Wi-Fi for an hour. I've got to write a report or a document. And I just sit there and write it offline. Yes. And it's really interesting how productive you get. And you go, right, I'm just going to sit here for 50 minutes, write this, then take a break for 10 minutes, turn back on the Wi-Fi and make sure, you know, the house isn't burning down. Yes. You know? And so what you're doing there is you're making really conscious decisions, aren't you? I'm, yeah. I'm fo- my attention is going to be focused over here for this period of time. And it's going to be focused over in this other direction for this other period of time. Yeah rather than that, that, having to keep that attention flicking between one thing and the next. And we know, don't we, that when we flick our attention around like that, that we lose little bits of awareness along the way. Yeah. And the more tasks we're trying to concentrate on at once, the more likely it is that we miss bigger chunks of information and we start to forget things and we start to make mistakes and we start to make bad decisions. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. Yeah. So, Melissa, for, for, your, uh, for your business, Sleep Matters, if there's companies or organizations out there that would like to get like general education, maybe for their workforce um, on mindfulness and mindful techniques, is that something that you guys do as well? Do you go in and kind of educate the masses on, on some of these strategies? Yeah, yeah, we've done quite a bit of that. Um, we've done a few talks around, around town um, for, for groups, generally we give, um, you know, some, some good information about, about sleep, what's normal, um, what the, the evidence-based treatments are when we're talking about psychological and behavioural approaches and certainly mindfulness is, is very much part of that. And is there any, any link there that you see between, between the mindfulness part and mental health? Because this is obviously a growing issue in a lot of ind- industrial applications where people are looking now at mental health strategies and sleep as well as part of this integrated health approach. Yeah. Look, it's all very much um, in, in the same basket here, just as sleep and mental health. We, we know that there's very strong links there, so too, between mindfulness and, and mental health. And in fact mindfulness-based therapies were applied to things like depression and anxiety, actually, before they were applied to sleep. So sleep is kind of a relative newcomer, if you like, in terms of the way mindfulness is being applied. Yeah, some of the big, just on that point, I think some of the big improvements long-term for depression that I have read through the literature is aerobic exercise, mindfulness, and attention to nutrition. They've been yes. more, far more effective than, you know, medication, we'll say. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, medication certainly has its place, but when you look at the outcome studies on it, the, the effects aren't, aren't quite as much as, uh, as you might hope, are they? Yeah. And I, I've had a few friends. We had one guy on a podcast on episode three who basically made the intervention of uh, eliminating alcohol due to alcoholism that he, he identified. And, uh, yeah, then turned around and lost 20-something kilos, start running ultra marathons, alleviate symptoms of depression, just completely new person, you know. And he made the intervention around removal of alcohol, so kind of a nutritional thing, which then led to better sleep, more energy, wanted to exercise, get fit and healthy, and that lessened his depression. So he had this kind of positive vicious cycle, I call it, that yes. affected his life, you know. And uh, yes. the guy's running 50K races now and feels Wow, great. what a transformation. Yeah. So it's, you know, there's, there's definitely ways around it. So, Melissa, before we, before we wrap it up, um, how can people get in touch with you if they do want to talk to you about group sessions or one-on-one or to have further discussions? 
Oh, look, yeah, people have been most welcome to get in touch. So um, we have uh, a website, which is sleepmattersperth.com. Yep. And we've got a team of six of us that work there. Uh, we've, as I said, we're, we're in Subiaco and uh, O'Connor, and we run groups through the Marion Centre a few times a year as well. Marion Centre's in Wembley. It's a... It's actually a psychiatric hospital, but we, we run some insomnia groups out of there. Um, also, yeah, we do we do the seminars and we do one-on-one sessions as well. Okay, excellent. And so what book are you currently reading yourself, Melissa? What's your current um, interest in, in, in books? What are you reading that's outside of mindfulness and psychology and sleep literature? I just read, finally, Remains of the Day. Remains of the Day. Yes, you know, uh, it was a movie, I don't know, it's probably 10 or more years ago now, with Anthony Hopkins. Oh. Beautiful. And the book was, and the movie was called Remains of the Day. Yeah. So he's working as a, as a butler in a, in a big manor house in the UK, but it's, it's um, during the war and, uh, you know, just really reflecting on all, all the changes, probably a little bit Downton Abbey-like in a sense, but it, it's very much just from his perspective. Yeah, Remains of the Day. Well, what, there you go. Well, actually, it's a lot longer than you think. It's 1993 here on IMDb. This one is oh, don't. <laughs> yeah, sorry, Melissa. I'm too, far too young to remember that. I think I was two. <laughs> wink, wink, nod, nod. Yeah, Remains yeah, of the yeah. Day. It gets a healthy 7.9 out of 10. I don't believe I've ever seen this. I've not seen it either. But I'm going, to, I'm going to watch it now. I've read the book. My God, the picture's here. Emma Thompson hasn't changed that much. That's like 25 years ago. She looks the same. She's doing well. Anthony Hopkins still looks old, but there you go. Anyway. <laughs> so so you're into, you like to read novels, Emma, listen, even to kind of tune out. Look, on my, on my bedside, there's a stack of books, probably about 12 high. <laughs> and it will range from everything from that to self-help books, to textbooks. <laughs> I'm laughing because I'm the same. I've got a book right. by Richard Feidler on the, Roman, on the Ghost Empire and the Roman Empire. I've got a book on Ulysses Grant, the American president. I've got the second book in a trilogy by Teddy Ro- about Teddy Roosevelt. I've got one of Stephen King's books there. And, you know, people say you shouldn't do that, but I just love hopping from one thing to another. Just, and I can seem to just pick it up and, and go back in. I've got another book on Buddhism. Another one on near-death experiences. But I think it's a bit like watching TV for me. It's like flicking. I watch an episode of this. <laughs> yeah. So it might take me like two years to read 10 books, but I don't know. I like it. So yes. But I have got, um, there's one, um, Jonathan Fields, uh, How to Live a Good Life. I've got that on its way from Book Depository at the moment. And that, I believe, is using a lot of mindfulness-type practices. And it's... it's um, a bit like decluttering the mind, letting go of what's not, not important. So I'll be, I'll be interested to have a look at that one when it comes. Have you heard of uh, Johan Henry? No, I haven't. He's, I, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Um, I listened to a few episodes of on different podcasts. Um, he brought out a book um, called Lost Connections. He's from the UK. Oh, you know, I, I have, um, I actually had a client recommend that book this week. A very, very easy read and quick read. And I think like yeah. people, people in our, our, um, um, our discipline, you'll get through it pretty quick. But it talks about 
um, you know the different types of the different uh, sorry cognitive behavioral therapies medication you know how we kind of evolved yeah you're a Harry sorry uh, J-O-H-A-N-N and Harry H-A-R-I he's a writer and a journalist and he wrote this book called Lost Connections I believe it's in Dimux that's where I picked it up um, it's it's quite good quite easy to read so yeah sounds good anyway I put all these in the show notes and uh, people can click on those Melissa thank you very much for joining us today on Sleep for Performance Radio as always with all the guests it's a very interesting conversation and I'm sure we've got lots more to talk about on other episodes so I really appreciate your time today oh thanks very much for having me Ian it's great thanks
This episode of Sleep for Performance Radio is also brought to you by Sleep WA, Western Australia. Now, Sleep WA is one of the only few nationally accredited sleep laboratories in Western Australia, meaning that they have put their services and quality systems to the test against the national standards. They provide commitment and dedication by providing you a high quality service. Now, I've worked with these guys before. They are excellent. Um, they are a very diligent business and one that is trusted here in Western Australia. Sleep WA is one of the only sleep and respiratory centres to provide holistic care and treatment for all sleep and respiratory disorders, not just obstructive sleep apnea, which many people would have hear, heard about in, uh, in the news or in, in the scientific literature or even on this podcast. So Sleep WA believe that all patients deserve compassion, support, multiple treatment options and education to allow them to actively participate in their own journey to better health. Sleep WA provides a comprehensive service to diagnose and recommend treatment of all respiratory diseases and sleep disorders. This includes rare sleep disorders and those complicated by cardiovascular disease. The Sleep WA philosophy is to offer patients expert diagnosis, effective therapy and supportive guidance on the road to better health and sleep. They are a leader in respiratory and sleep medicine and provide the following service at locations throughout Western Australia. Consultation with experienced specialists, comprehensive respiratory testing for lung disease, asthma and allergies, inpatient sleep studies, home-based sleep studies, that's pretty handy, insomnia management programs for insomnia and circadian disorders, and fatigue management programs to reduce risk and improve health in the workplace. So get started on your journey towards better health and sleep today and head over to Sleep WA, that's WA for Western Australia, and get in contact with Dion. This episode of Sleep for Performance Radio is brought to you by Orbiz. Orbiz are a global consulting firm who facilitate the rapid delivery of significant and sustainable improvements in performance across a diversity of industries. They facilitate turnaround, transformation and strategic improvement programs through the development and implementation of a system and culture of lean and continuous improvement. Now, Orbis are growing their global presence across the Asia-Pacific region, Europe, Middle East, Africa and the Americas. Their range of services include optimization of business development systems to deliver growth, true to operating system improvements that reduce cost by improvements in safety, quality and productivity. So what this means for your business, typically they will give you outcomes such as a reduction in cost. Who can beat that? Increasing capacity utilization, throughput, increase in revenue, profitability, and overall customer value and satisfaction. Orbis have extensive experience in facilitating change in challenging environments by utilizing lean tools and methodology, joining engagements across the world, including diverse um, sectors and industry, such as mining, energy, construction, transport, aerospace, manufacturing, and healthcare. Orbis people are industry professionals driven to achieve sustained results through the development of trusted relationships. So head over to www.orbis.org. This episode is also brought to you finally by Fatigue Science. The Fatigue Science Ready Band is a wearable device that helps you improve safety and your performance through the science of sleep. The ReadyBand is a way more than just a sleep tracker. It's the world's only sleep measurement tool that's paired with safety, a biomechanical fatigue model, which has a predictive algorithm. So what that means is it's actually predicting to the future what your performance is gonna be based upon 
your data. This was initially developed by the US Army Research Lab and was uh, built to improve the performance of soldiers in operational environments. Now this device has been adapted to work in elite athletes and industrial workers. This is also a device that I have validated in the laboratory myself and I have used extensively in industry and research applications. As listeners of this podcast, you probably know that restorative sleep is about more than just the numbers of hours of sleep you get, factors like when you sleep, how much sleep that you have accrued, and even your local um, geographical location, so a sunset, the time you go to bed, the time the sun comes up, all of these things are all these different factors in chronobiology um, that affect your performance. So this ready band was developed to incorporate all these factors that can really help you understand the real impact of sleep on your life. So ReadyBand not only helps you track changes to your fatigue over time, but also allows you to discover new ways to achieve personal fatigue improvement goals. So you can actually measure the improvements that you're making uh, as you go. Now, ReadyBand is is relied on by lots of different organizations and they've got a very impressive resume. So winners of the Super Bowl, Seattle Seahawks have used this, the Chicago Cubs have used this, military special forces and workers who operate in uh, long shifts in dangerous environments such as tunneling underground, mining, oil and gas. Uh, it's been used in elite sports such as rugby, basketball, um, it's been used at the Australian Institute of Sport, it's been used in uh, elite MMA athletes who compete in the UFC so it's a wide variety of applications so if fatigue is important to you and your organization whether you're a sports team or an industrial workforce head to fatiguescience.com that's fatiguescience.com to speak to a member of their team and to learn more about how the ready band can improve safety and performance in your organization <laughs>